Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, church. My name is Victoria. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm currently 20 weeks along with our baby girl, Sayla. Yeah. <laughs> so as an expectant mother at Christmas time, I feel as though I have a unique perspective of this story. After all, Jesus did have a mom. <laughs> so I'll be reading this reflective piece that I wrote. Love is the first thing that we understand. Inside me, she knows not what pain is, or sadness, or anger. But she knows that when I touch my belly and sing her lullabies, that I love her more than anything in the world. When she is born, she will recognize my voice, and she will recognize my heartbeat. She knows her mother, and she knows how much her mother loves her. How is it that even before we breathe our first breath, that we understand one of the most complex emotions in the whole world. What is it about love that is literally sewn into us at the very start? It is a part of us, moving and flowing, a mighty force to be reckoned with, and on the other hand, a soft and delicate touch that can ease pain. We have the power to give love freely, but we also have the power of destruction by snatching love away. If God is love, and we are made in the image of God, then we are made in the image of love itself. When I think about this season and what it means, or even how to explain it all, the only thing that can sum it up is love. The story was written out of God's unconditional love for his creation. A mother was chosen, and she was filled with mighty love. A baby was born, and he would grow up to be the picture of love, the ultimate sacrifice, the definition of a complex, unexplainable love. He grew up to die because of love. So what is it about love that is sown into us from the very start? Is it a reminder of who we're really created to be? Is it a gift to us from a gracious Father? Is it a call to action to be and reflect the love that we are to the rest of the world? What is it about love? All right, good evening everyone and welcome to City Beautiful Church and a very merry and or happy Christmas depending on which side of the pond you grew up on. Um, it was great. Tim and I were just, Tim plays guitar here. We were just talking uh, beforehand about, uh, you know, the joy of, of recognizing in our own heritages and the various ways in which we've approached uh, holidays, not the least, which is Christmas. Um, the, you know, the incredible diversity that's present within our community and around the world, that this is one of those days, it's one of those moments where the entire family of God is centered on this one perfect, beautiful moment. 
And not only is it Christmas Eve, but it's also the fourth Sunday in Advent. This is something that rarely happens in that they coincide and are, are the same day. Uh, and, and in this Advent season, we've been reflecting kind of that we exist in this creative tension as we look back and remember the first coming of God in the person of Jesus. It gives us this confidence to look forward to his second coming that we're waiting for God to finish what it is that he started so many years ago, but now we know what God looks like, we know what God sounds like, and that gives us the confidence to anticipate his return, not necessarily from a place of yearning and desperation, but of true and genuine hope. And through this Advent season, we've been examining that reality of God, Emmanuel, uh, God with us, uh, through hope, through peace, through joy, and today we're gonna be looking at it through love. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna pray for you, uh, and you pray for me, and we'll get right into whatever the Lord has to do uh, and has to say tonight. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you're here and that you're with us and that you're for us. Lord, we join our voices, we join our hearts with our brothers and sisters around the world, those who have and those who have not, those who can see your face so clearly and those who are desperately looking for you in dark places. Father, we pray that this Christmas season would be one that continues to bind us together, not in a unity that we manufacture for ourselves, not a unity that comes out of our intellectual uh, uh, assessment of the story, uh, not out of our, you know, the decisions that we make and the, the efforts that we make to kind of do things the same way, but a unity that we recognize has been given to us as a gift because of the presence of Jesus. So, Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so I was really excited for us today to center on uh, the first chapter of John. It's been something of a guiding mantra for us this year. We started off the year with this series called In Search of the Beloved, where we allowed John's gospel to lead us on this journey of, of what does it look like when God pursues his most beloved, which is humanity, and what is the invitation that we're called to to respond to that kind of belovedness. And so, of course, we began that series looking at John 1, looking at this beautiful poem that John writes that kind of sets the tone for the rest of his gospel. And in it, he speaks so often of light and love. Just those few verses again at the very beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And time and again, we've, we've revisited those lines, whether it was through that beloved series in Signposts in the Mist, where we're looking at how it's the Old Testament was the partial revelation of God, that the Old Testament is people taking their best experiences of God in that moment and adding it into the conversation, but always with this eye to the future, always with this anticipation, what is it going to look like when God arrives, when God gives us his Messiah, when God puts flesh on and dwells among us? And as we saw, the Old Testament ends with kind of this question mark and this period of 400 years of silence and darkness before God decides to speak and move through Jesus. 
And it's beautiful because it is a Christmas story. John chapter 1 is a Christmas story. Oftentimes, we think about the the writers of Matthew and Luke as those are the ones with the baby in the manger and the, the angels and the shepherds and the magi, all of these stories that are kind of the hodgepodge mythos that we accept um, as Christians when we center in on it this day. Mark was too busy uh, trying to get to the point, so he doesn't even bother with uh, Jesus' childhood. He just jumps straight into the ministry. But John decides to tell us the same story, but from an entirely different perspective. Because you see, what Matthew and Luke were trying to do is to show us this strange, mysterious baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, to see this child grow up and become a rabbi, and to see this rabbi begin to lead a revolution, but not the revolution that everybody anticipated, but something grander and far more heavenly. That Jesus being God incarnate is almost like the punchline of those gospels. But you see, John inverts the whole process. John wants to tell us the nativity story, but he wants to start with the truth that Jesus is the word of God and that Jesus is God incarnate. And we looked at how that, that one line, it says that, that God came and made his home among us or God tabernacled with us. God pitched his tent with us or as Eugene Peterson said, God moved into the neighborhood. And so when we read the words of John 1, we're seeing the heavenly perspective that we lay over top of the Christmas narrative that many of us are familiar with, and it gives us this more complete picture of what it is that God's doing. And it's beautiful that John starts with this metaphor of light, and that's what we're going to be focusing in on today. And over and over again in the writings of John, light becomes the central metaphor for us to understand who Christ is for us. And so as I was preparing over these past couple weeks, knowing that this is where we're going to go and we're going to be focusing on light, of course, I did all this ridiculous research into the dynamic properties of light and how light is a wave, but it's also a particle, and we could talk about quantum mechanics, and we could talk about the speed of light and how things start to change and our understanding of reality and so on and so forth, and I think Landon would be probably the only person that would be interested in that sermon. But I was kind of listing out all of these different properties of light and saying, why is this such a profound metaphor? metaphor for us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, and not only that, but what he continues to do. And I think this is perhaps the simplest yet most profound understanding of light that we can have. Light enables us to see. Light enables us to see. We can observe light, and we can measure light, and we can theorize about light, but the true power of light itself as some sort of force in the universe is the way in which it interacts with us, that it it changes something about our understanding of ourselves and about the universe around us. It changes our material interaction with reality itself. And so I think for us to understand when, when John is using this metaphor, he's picking his words wisely. He's telling us that, that, that Jesus, as the light of God, enables us to see. And not only do we find this in the writings of John and in the communities that he found, founds in southern Turkey, but it becomes this recurring theme, especially in the early church. So a couple hundred years after uh, Christianity is, is launched as this kind of a new expression of Judaism in the first century, and then it starts to develop its own different characteristic, Christians begin to spread all throughout the Roman Empire, and they bring this message of Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Logos, the Word of God, as John and others put it. But the early Christians had this, this difficulty in bringing the message of Jesus to northern Europe, which was the realm of the Celts. How many of you are Celt if you go way back? 
The pastier you are, the more Celt you are, basically. Um, and they had difficulty at, at first figuring out how do we present the message of Jesus in a way that will most resonate with these, uh, with these Celtic tribes. And what they found in the Celtic world was that they worshipped the sun. So for you who live in Florida, you may not be familiar with this, but for much of the rest of the world on the winter solstice, which we just saw on December 21st, it's the darkest night of the year. It's when the sun practically never comes up. And the farther north you go in the world, uh, the, the darker it really is. And in the Celtic world, it was this recognition that it was only after the darkest point in the year that the sun is reborn. And so for the Celts, it became this, this, this miracle of new birth, of new reality setting forth. And so they celebrated that winter solstice as this holy night. And for them, they would gather around a large tree in their, in their village, and they would decorate that tree, and they would sing songs, and they would speak of birth and light and new life. And it was those early Christians that were entering into the Celtic world that saw something there that rather than, than scrapping their culture, rather than saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, we need to stamp things uh, with the name of Jesus incorporated in order to make it true, they decided to bless something that they found in the Celtic world. And they said, you recognize there's something powerful about light, that light speaks of life, that there's some sort of a, a new birth occurring in this, and you revere the light, but we've come to show you a light that is even more profound than the sun itself, that the sun is part of this creation, but the true light of the world is him through which all was created. And so this is how we decided that December 25th would be uh, Jesus' birthday. He wasn't actually born on this day. Sorry, kids. But what the early Christians did was they said, if the solstice is the 21st, 22nd, then three days later, the 24th, 25th, will be uh, Christ Mass, the celebration of Christ, his birth. Because what they're doing in a really beautiful way is evangelizing the Celts by blessing what they find there, but adding on these three days, because for us, three days means resurrection, it means new life, and that's how we established uh, the tradition of Christmas. But it all spoke, there was something woven into uh, the, the DNA of humanity that we recognize something about the power of darkness to light, about rebirth, about new creation. Elsewhere we find in the New Testament in Hebrews, what we've seen several times this year as well, that the writer there says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his character. Another way to say it is when God shines, it looks like Jesus, it feels like Jesus, it sounds like Jesus. If you wanna know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And the Old Testament says we didn't always know that, but now we do. And in the writings of John and elsewhere in the New Testament and the writings of the, the early church fathers, especially as they're beginning to reach out to the rest of the known world, light and love are constantly bound together. Now, if light is something that's hard for us to define or hard for us to focus in on what really matters, then love doubly so, that love is probably the most universally accepted of concepts, yet is the hardest to define. Perhaps even as I'm, I'm, I'm positing that to you, you're thinking about little phrases that you've gathered along in your life that come close to defining what love is, yet all words seem to fall short at some point when we speak about love. It's something that we all testify is true. We don't exactly know why, and we don't exactly know what it is. But perhaps we can take this simple and profound truth about light, and we can also apply it to love, that love enables us to see. 
Just as light enables us to see, as light illuminates the world around us, so does love. Because when we haven't experienced real, true, genuine love, we're bumping around in the dark, grasping for anything that can possibly steady us. And for many of us, we have grown up in a dark world that didn't really present us with an accurate representation of what love is really like. And so we've settled for these counterfeit, our false senses of love. And what does this false love look like? What does it feel like? How do we interact with it? False love is based on obligation. That my role in love is to follow the rules. My role in love is to be told what to be or who to be, what to do. And my job in love is to give those definitions to someone else, to another group of people, whomever it might be. And it's out of obligation that false love operates on the premise of should. Well, I should do this, or I'm supposed to do that. False love is contractual. It's about this exchange of goods and services that keep us in balance. Some of you might uh, not remember these days, but once upon a time, we had a Congress that compromised. And what compromise means is none of us are going to get everything that we want, but all of us are going to get something we want. And so you enter into negotiations to create a contract. This is what you do similarly with your landlord. And a lot of times, we treat love in that same way. Neither of us are going to get everything we want out of this relationship. So let's make some definitions and let's make some compromises and maybe we'll get some of what we want, but we'll both be decently happy. We'll both survive. We'll get just enough to be able to call this contract a success. And before long, the people that we proclaim to love and that love us, it begins looking a lot more like they're our landlord. That we've signed some paper in exchange for goods and services, and I can call you when you're not fulfilling my needs, and if need be, I'll take you to court in order to get it settled. But that, that false love, that counterfeit love, operates in a contractual mindset. And ultimately, false love, counterfeit love, becomes controlling. Either we feel controlled and manipulated by something called love, and we don't have any other definition for it, so we accept it, or in turn, we try to control other people. We try to manipulate other people in the name of love. And these are the kind of solutions that human beings come up with when we're bumping around in the dark, when we haven't been shown what love really looks like. But perhaps the most profound thing that we're celebrating today in this Christmas season is that God came into the world to reveal to us through Jesus what love really looks like, what love really sounds like, what love really feels like. Because the true love of God, if the counterfeit is based on obligation, then the true love of God is based on grace, which is the gift that says you're still in the game. There's still more to go. I don't expect you to be a finished product. In fact, I promise you that you are not. But true love says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to empower you to become more than you were when I met you. A grace-filled love gives us forgiveness that when we fall short, that we haven't followed all the rules, that we haven't set forth all the clearly defined boundaries. But true love enables us to have grace to move on the journey together. If contractual love is that false notion of love, then we find in, in, in true love the place of covenant. 
I was really honored to, to do several weddings this year and attend several others. And, and as I was reflecting, as I do, every, every time I'm asked to do something like that, because I take it very seriously, to say, what, what are we doing here? What is this, this, and I am technically signing a contract for the benefit of the United States government, but that's not really what we're doing. What is this covenantal love? And I realized, how ridiculous would it be for any of the couples uh, that I got to marry this year that I was witnessing for them to come up and to say, I promise nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. I promise that I'm going to repair the roof exactly when it needs. I promise that I'm never going to get sick and I'm always gonna show up on time. You know, the other person would turn to them and say, ah, no, I'm out. <laughs> this is insane. That's not true covenantal love. That's a contractual love. And I realized in the marital vows, there's this whole other value system that we place in covenantal love that says, regardless of what happens at the end of the day, I'm still choosing into you in sickness and in health for richer, for poorer. I can't predict the future. I don't know who you are most of the time. I don't know who I am half the time, but I'm willing to make covenant with you to, on that journey of discovery because I don't know where we're going. But if we go there together, we're going to be okay. And the true love that God offers us is this covenantal love that's committed to the journey that regardless what happens, he is with us and he is for us. And finally, if false love gives us this sense of being controlled or makes us think that we can control others, then true love should be freeing. True love should free us, and the way in which we love other people should free them. And this has actually become one of the ways in which I am learning how to gauge love in my life, whether it's from friends or family or whomever it might be. Do, am I a bigger person because of this person who says that they love me, or am I smaller? And even in the way that I say that I love other people, am I seeing this other person become more because I'm in their life, or are they becoming less? And I think that's a challenge for all of you to consider in your relationships that you, that you call love. Are you growing as a person? Or are you stagnating? Or worse, yes, let yet, do you feel smaller? Do you feel less of a person because of the people who call, that talk about love? Because if over time you feel trapped or you feel controlled or you feel made small, I don't know that that's really love. And you see, it's something beyond feeling. I'm not talking about how you feel. Many of you know I'm not very fond of feelings. I'm talking about something deeper. I'm talking about love is only true if it transforms us. Love is only real if we are different in our interaction than if we, weren't, we hadn't met that person, if we hadn't had the encounter. And so often we paste the label of love over things that aren't actually doing the job. There's no real fruit to it. And that has to sometimes come over a season because sometimes true love does not feel very good. But we know at the end of the day that it's helping us to grow and to become more than we were before we encountered it. And what are, what are the, our struggles with love? If you kind of imagine this spectrum as I often do, on one side perhaps we have cynicism and on the other side we have sen sentimentality. And cynicism is a really great defense mechanism that many of us have engaged in order to prevent ourselves from encountering true love. 
that when someone talks about love, we're able to swat that down and to talk about how it's an illusion or how it's, you know, too pie in the sky or whatever it might be. And we use it to protect ourselves that we have just enough human interaction. We have just enough interaction with God in order to survive, but we're not really thriving because we've learned how to protect ourselves because we're afraid of what true love is going to do to us. I think one of the saddest things that we can say to our beloved is, I'm afraid that you're, you're here to change me. I think that is the number one job of love, is that love changes us. And if you are afraid of change, you are afraid of love. And so if cynicism is kind of on this one side of being an inhibitor to love, then sentimentality is on the other. And this is where we idolize love where we try to package love and put it on a shelf and it becomes this object that we look at and we obsess over. I think just as much as cynicism is a killer of love, sentimentality perhaps even more because for a time maybe it does feel like real love. But I think sentimentality is the greatest threat to us encountering real and genuine love because sentimentality still doesn't ask us to change. Sentimentality still doesn't ask us to grow. Sentimentality insists on a constant supply of chocolates and Hallmark cards in order to make us feel like the illusion like we're being loved, but it itches a scratch that it cannot satisfy. But I think in either of those scenarios, whether it's cynicism or sentimentality, we have reduced love to this object that we're looking at. Maybe we're interacting with it, maybe we're not. But there's 99 objects in the room, and then all of a sudden love enters in, and now there's 100 objects. And I think what happens so often is that we ascribe this, the same attitude we have towards love. This is why it matters what you think about love, because you're necessarily going to ascribe that to God. Because the conclusion of the whole story is found in 1 John, as we look at it in a moment, where it says God is love. And whatever you believe about love is whatever you're going to believe about God. If you're cynical about love, you're cynical about God. If you're sentimental about God, you're sentimental about love. But we often think of God, we objectify God in that same way. There's 99 objects in here when you guys came in, and then we, we did the rain dance, we sang some songs, and now God is the 100th object in the room. And we look at him, and we pet him, and we stroke him, and we put him on the mantelpiece, and isn't God delightful? We've objectified God. We've idolized him. We've made him small and manageable. And ultimately, it doesn't ask anything of us. It doesn't ask us to change. But I think God is as much objective as he is subjective. And what do I mean by that? God is the object of our affection. God is a person. When we go, where is God? We go, oh, there he is. And he looks like Jesus. He has the face of Jesus. But God as the light of Christ, is also the way in which we gaze upon everyone and everything else. And so God is also subjective. Everything else in the world looks different when you're in love. Everything looks different. Every moment feels different. The world is more technicolor. It feels more open. It feels more alive. And that is the subjective nature of love. We can't put love through the scientific method and assume that we're going to come out on the other side with a very clear definition because by definition, it's something that we encounter and it transforms us. 
Tomorrow morning, dads around the world are going to wake up to one of the biggest lies they've ever been given. That is the mug that says world's number one dad. Why do they make thousands of those? It's like, if there's a thousand of them, 999 of those mugs are a lie, right? But this is how we think if we're talking about it objectively. It's the same thing when you say to somebody, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. If we think love is objective, that is a dirty, filthy lie. You should probably say to somebody, you are definitely above average and enough attraction level for me to want to interact with you for the rest of my life. (laughs) Or that mug should say, you are definitely in the top 50% of dads, right? If love was objective, that's what you'd say. By the way, this is probably why I'm still single because I'm still working through this whole love thing. But that world's best mug The world's best dad mug is objectively speaking a lie. There is only one world's best dad. His name is Robin Adams, and he will be here tomorrow at about 6.30 so that we can enjoy Christmas dinner together. But love is not objective. Love is not measurable. Love is not something that we can just compare with a bunch of other objects, but it's something that we interact with and trans- it transforms us. Several years ago, I was in a, in a worship gathering, and there was, there was nothing in and of itself that was particularly remarkable, but for a moment, I decided to go and get a cup of coffee, and every face that I looked at while I was walking out of the room, I was so overwhelmed with how much I loved these people. And I went downstairs, and I went to the coffee bar, and I was pouring myself coffee, and I had this strange thought. I said, I'm pouring coffee with the love of God. And I walked back up these stairs, and I said, I'm walking these stairs with the love of God. And it was this very strange revelation that, yes, God is the object of my affection, but God is also becoming the way by which I see everything else in the room. Because when we've encountered love, the mundane becomes sacred. The most ordinary, everyday aspects of your life become imbued with beauty and meaning. And see, this is the place where cynicism starts to take over. And I know it because I have it in my own heart. To have a moment like that to say, I'm pouring coffee with the love of God and just say, oh, that's, that's stupid. That's sentimental. That's ridiculous. And maybe it is if there's not transformation on the other side of it. I think that's what we call sentimentality. But so often we're protecting ourselves from the purity of transformative love. One of my favorite philosopher theologians, Peter Rollins, has this to say. This is what love does. It does not make itself visible, but rather makes others visible to us. In a very precise sense, then, love does not exist, but calls others into existence. For to exist means to stand forth from the background, to be brought into the foreground. Love does not stand forth, but brings others forth. When we love, our beloved is brought out of the vast undulating sea of others. Just as the Torah speaks of God calling forth beings from the formless ferment of being, so love calls our beloved from the endless ocean of undifferentiated objects. To put it another way, love does not stand up on a stage and say, look at me and how glorious and sublime I am. Love points to the person in the corner and says, look at them. Look at how glorious they are. Look how sublime they are. Look how worthy they are. Look how beloved they are. And this is how God, in the light of Christ, operates for us. That God doesn't demand our attention like he's some sort of insecure idol, but that God reveals to us the world. We begin to see the rest of the world in the light of Christ. 
and everything else becomes beautiful and meaningful. And this is the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us in that form of a baby. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how it's very important for us to recognize that God chose to come in the form of an innocent and helpless and vulnerable baby and not a military commander because it speaks something to the way in which God is going to rescue the world. And indeed, God rescues the world by giving us a dramatically different version of what love really is, that God's love is found in being broken open, in being made weaker, in being vulnerable, being, being affected and disarmed. And this is what we see in the entire life of Jesus is the testimony of God's love from the moment that he was a helpless baby in the manger in Bethlehem to the moment that he was crucified on a cross in Jerusalem to the moment that he ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That in every single moment, it's God who made the first move, who stepped out of the darkness, and God who became open and tender and vulnerable before us. God who risked being naked before us to show us this is what love really looks like. And to receive the light of Christ is for all of us to come out of the darkness of self-sufficiency, of thinking might makes right, and thinking we need to protect ourselves from other people, we need to protect ourselves from God, and to step into the light of Christ and to be revealed as we truly are. And to trust, and this is the hard thing, to trust that when you are in the light of Christ, that you are revealed as you truly are, that all of your defense mechanisms are put to the side, all of your fear is done away with, that what God sees is good enough. And he's okay with it, even if you're not, because he can do something with that. This is what Christmas is all about, remembering this extraordinary love that has come down to light the way for us to come home, to step out of the darkness and into the light. And when we are able to see by the light of Jesus, we can begin to love like Jesus. As I said, when Jesus came to show us this is what love really looks like, or else it would have been a continuation of the story before him that we would have been bumping around in the dark, doing our best impressions of love, hoping someday someone will deliver us. And I think that God in some way or another has been speaking the light of love since the very beginning. The story in Genesis begins with God speaking, let there be light, and he calls it very good because God creates out of love that love is woven into the fabric of the universe. And even John corroborates this in, in, the, in the poem that begins his gospel, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Because God's love does not force itself upon us. Indeed, for God to force us to recognize him as he truly is, by definition means that it is not love. That God's love is always an invitation to step into the light and never coercion. God never, ever, ever coerces or forces his children to recognize him. And whenever we use coercion or force to get other people to see the face of God, they will stay in the dark. And I think this is going to be a major theme for us in the next year as I've been in prayer about where God's taking us. That our role as Christians is to name the love that we already see present in the world. Our role as Christians is not to co-opt culture, 
It is not to conquer through force, but it is to name the goodness that we see in the world. In the same way that our ancestors were able to enter into the Celtic world, not to do away with the beauty that they found there, but to actually bless it and to name it and to redeem it and to show that there was actually a higher calling there all the time and they didn't necessarily know it. That is our role today in the 21st century. Real Christianity is seeing through the veil of darkness and saying, ah, there he is. That's Jesus. That's what he looks like. That's what he sounds like. And I think when we reclaim that as our divine vocation, we will see others step into the light of Christ and in turn be transformed by it. You see, our love does not seek to escape the world, to run away and pretend that it's not dark. Our love doesn't seek to transcend all of this, to say, well, we're, we're above the fray. We're, we're no longer part of that thing. But true love empowers us to engage the world as it actually is, especially in the darkest places, and to bring the healing of the light of Christ. Because this is the pattern of love that's found in God, the new way to new creation. Last Saturday, uh, I had the distinct honor of going to a funeral of a friend and spiritual father of mine, Kent Davis. And yes, I am aware that the man looks like Santa Claus. And when he was rolling through Ebor on his motorcycle, it was doubly awesome. Um, Kent died of pancreatic cancer on December 8th, uh, far too early. He, he hadn't hit 60 years old yet. Um, he has five amazing children. Many of you have met Joel, his son, who's come here to lead worship. One of my best friends uh, leads the, the worship band Ascend the Hill. Um, and, Joel, or, and, and Kent has been a spiritual father to me for many years, not just for me, but for so many of the people in, in the association in which I was um, ordained. And several years ago, in May of 2013, I was in one of the darkest moments of my life, overwhelmed by a feeling of guilt for my past and, and tremendously confused about who I am and where I'm going. And all of a sudden in this, I was offered the job to come here and to pastor this church. And so I went out to Tampa and I was spending time with Kent and his family and I was just kind of laying it all out for him and how afraid I was and how wretched I felt and this, this potential offer from the Lord to move into this new season of life. And it was Kent's willingness to speak to me what he felt like the Lord was saying earlier that day that is the reason that I'm here. He, said, he spoke one thing to me that night and I knew that this was the path that the Lord had me on. And so it was amazing to be in this room chock full of people who had been affected by Kent. He had started uh, a ministry called Harvest International, that they had gone into the darkest places in Eastern Europe when the Iron Curtain was still up, that they had gone uh, to Central America and, and planted schools and, and uh, orphanages, that he had a church in the Tampa area that has affected thousands. And time and again, people came up to talk about Kent, and they kept saying the same phrase over and over again, Kent revealed the light. Kent revealed the light. And it just reminded me of, again, in that, in that poem in John chapter 1, where it says, you know, John did not, John was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. That John came to reveal the light. And everyone in that room had been affected by Kent's endeavor to love greatly. People said even that he loved recklessly, that he loved impractically, that he loved irresponsibly, that he seemed to make very bad decisions in the name of love. But it was such an honor to stand in that room and to see the testimony of a man who had dedicated himself to love and yes, was taken from us too soon. 
but the legacy that he's left behind in people who had encountered the light of Christ in him, who had been transformed and who are now doing the same thing in communities around the world. What do you want to be remembered for at the end of your life? What do you want people to say in your eulogy? I almost said you googly. Do you want to be known as someone who followed all the rules? Someone who brought a, a lot of order to chaos and figured out, you know, the, the, the magic math equation that fixes everything? Do you want to be known as the person who was always in this hostage negotiation with people that they purported to love? Always giving a list of demands through the window and trying to get something through it? Or do you want to be known as somebody who irresponsibly and recklessly loved that revealed the light of Christ in everything that you say and that you do? Because I think it's the only legacy that really matters for those of us who consider ourselves followers of Christ. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to read as a prayer more words from the John tradition, this time in the letter of 1 John, that a community in southern Turkey so inundated with John's perspective of being the beloved that they write this letter to their own. And they start off that letter by saying, this is what we've seen, this is what we've heard, this is how we've been changed, how we've, how, what we testify to with our very lives. And we're sharing it with you so that you're, you might make our joy complete. Because for the community of John the Beloved, everything was about the encounter that leads us to transformation. So I wanna invite you to just close your eyes and to put your hands out in front of you in a posture of reception. And I'm gonna read uh, this passage from 1 John more as a prayer. We're just gonna invite the Lord to give us new revelation of what his true love looks like. That when the light of Christ shines into the darkness within our own lives, we're able to name uh, false and counterfeit forms of love. We're able to name cynicism. We're able to name sentimentality. But deeper still, in this deeper place within us that's still covered over in so much darkness, we recognize that the love of God already exists there. It is closer to us than we can possibly name. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Amen. Let's worship.
This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.